Deadline's Crew Call is brought to you by HBO, presenting Succession. Nominated for 27 Emmys, including Outstanding Drama Series and Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series. Don't miss the series critics call the end-all, be-all of TV. Succession is now streaming on Max. We're here today on Crew Call with Bruna Papandrea. She's a primetime Emmy Award winner of Big Little Lies, and she has a new series on Prime Video called The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart. Here she is. Bruna Papandrea, welcome. Thank you for having me. The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, the limited series which is on Prime Video, this is a series right now in your wheelhouse in regards to your mission for your production label, Made Up Stories, and its dedication to female-centric storylines. But tell us the journey. What struck you about Holly Ringwald's novel, and why did it take five years to develop? (laughs) <laughs> oh, how you know all good things take time. That's why that's why some of the good ones take so long. Um, it's true. Um honestly, my first uh interaction with the novel was um our business partner Jody Madison in Australia, who called me kind of passionately beside herself after having just read um Holly's novel. And and I was at that point, which I often um, where I was like, no, 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 we're too busy, it's too much, we can't take on another thing because at some point that's true. And she was like, you have to read it, you have to read it, you have to read it. And so I did, I started reading it and I saw exactly what she saw, which was this incredibly distinctive, unique, beautiful um, voice um, and, and told in a way that that I'd really never seen an Australian novel um, kind of evoke such um, beauty and feelings and also dealing with such, you know, tough subject matter. And and as you said earlier, it, it kind of, you know, it rings, it kind of screamed made-up stories because not only is it female-led, it's a massive female ensemble, um, you know, set in a country I love that told, I thought, what was a very international story that would re- that people would relate to worldwide. So how did how did you assemble it all with Sarah Lambert and Sigourney Weaver? How did that how did every how did all the parties come together? I mean, a lot of it's for us, it's often a lot of, you know, past relationships. We do tend to do a lot of, you know, repeat business, which is probably the thing I'm most proud of, having um, you know, built the company. Um, Sarah was someone we had been on our radar a long time and she had also been in contact with Holly and was really it was just such a massive fan of the book and so that that was a kind of great um uh, you know really fortuitous kind of timing she was someone that had been on our radar a long time and was always working and so when we realized her passion for the novel that felt like a very organic um collaboration and obviously that's probably the first and always most important decision for us is you know who's going to be the the gatekeeper of of you know this incredible novel and then the filmmaker Glendon Ivan we had made our movie with Penguin Bloom and had a tremendous experience and you know no secret one of the ways we prefer to make television and mostly the way that that I've done it um is with one or two filmmakers you know because I really think that kind of authorship is quite important and and you know the fewer hands on something, the better, in my opinion. Not not always the case for everything, but that's how we like to work. 
Now, and then Sigourney, what, you know. Oh, yeah, I forgot about the most important Yeah, cast an American in a, yeah. in a very Australian story. Yeah. Yeah, look, we knew that, look, it's a, for anyone that, you know, is seeing it or is about to see it, it's an epic and, you know, and often very, very difficult, um, you know, drama. Um, so you really needed someone um, of kind of Sigourney's stature and, and obviously someone who kind of brought that gravitas, knowing there was also a massive ensemble of, you know, other parts. And she was the first person on our list. Um, we're so blessed. I think that, you know, we have a reputation having done a lot of, you know, great work, particularly with 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 women um, in front of the camera, that she read the material, responded immediately, um, you know, her representative in America was someone that we had worked with a lot who had a lot of trust in us. And so it was it was an incredibly organic process. And the second she got on the phone and um, communicated with Glendon, um, it was really immediate um, connection for her. And, and it was, a, I will say, just an extraordinary experience for us, having worked with so much talent, this rates amongst my, you know, kind of one of my favourite collaborations. So one of the things that is just, I thought was really beautiful and just chilling was how were, were the visuals and the environment, meaning like the, the crops on fire yeah. and, and the, the, the dawn setting, set all of this against all of the turmoil that's going on um, with this poor girl and, and, and her mother. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about that completely different Australian set movie, mm. but it remind immediately what came to mind was, and again, very different movie, Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout. Oh which, yeah. yeah. No, uh, no. no, I thought yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I think for me, especially as someone who'd spent a lot of time away from Australia, I mean, I'd been gone, you know, past, uh, God past 20 years, you know, since I left and have kind of only recently relocated back. Um, you know, I I was always a, a little bit, I think, uh, underwhelmed by like how little we've seen of the country that is so vast and and also how little we've seen of the elements that affect this country. And um, I think one of one of the reasons I think early on that Glenn and Ivan were so drawn to it was this idea of the burning cane fields and, and um, you know, having having seen that and experienced it. And, you know, what's always really important to us, and, and you know this because, you know, you understand how films and TV shows get made, is the kind of art of it and the collaboration of it. And so, you know, we take every decision you know, incredibly seriously. You know, my producing partners, Jody and, and Steve and, and I, you know, we've worked with a lot of, you know, we'd worked with Sam Chiplin, the cinematographer, before because we'd worked with Glendon. Melinda Doring, the production designer, was someone I was desperate to work with. We'd worked with our costume designer because all of these decisions are so crucial when you are making something so kind of visually evocative like Lost Flowers. And, you know, I would say that it was one of the experiences where like everyone we worked with was at the top of their game, including, by the way, the people that never get spoken about, the editors, um, Danny and Deb, our two editors. You know, if you've seen the show, you understand that it is you know, almost remade in the edit because it is such complex storytelling. You're dealing with so many timelines and so much storytelling in 
so much time passing. And so, you know, that was a whole nother kind of, you know, challenge and process in itself. And, and, you know, these two women just did an incredible job. Did you find the episode quite often in the editing room? Yeah, look, I think, you know, a lot of what it was not, I don't think it's a particularly easy, you know, book to adapt because it's so, you know, obviously it's so internal and you have a lead character who, you know, in the young, in young hours, who doesn't speak, um, you know, for the first couple of episodes um, of the show. Um, and which obviously then casting obviously of, of young hours becomes so crucial. Um, but yeah, I think it is. I think, I mean, I think that's true of most, of most things that, you know, it, it's a whole nother process that starts in post and, and, you know, things can be remade and I'm always stunned and thrilled with what you can do, you know, in the edit and, and how things can, you know, how you can shift something and, and how it can really shift the show emotionally. Um, and you know, it was, a, it was a long process, you know, our, I think our filmmaker, I think we shot for eight months and then edited for you know, another eight months, you know, obviously people underestimate how long television can take when you're making it like a film with one filmmaker, you know, it's a, it's a long process. It's, it's seven hours of, you know, a a film essentially. Did you have this sold to Amazon before you started shooting or did you finance it first? Um, like the, the pilot and then, and then they came aboard. Yeah, the way we generally work is we like to have one or two scripts. Um, I think in this case we might have even had more. We, we definitely had two. And um, obviously we had a book and we had Sarah and we had Glendon and it was at that point that we sold it to Amazon globally. And it was, it was a very important kind of moment for us because it was the first one of the first big global originals out of Australia that we made. Um, and really my first time making something with Amazon, it's, they've, they've acquired several of our shows, but really not from, not, not built something from the ground up. So that my next question is, you know, since going solo with made up stories, have you found that you have more bandwidth to make more of the Australian stories that are close to your heart? And why is that? Do you think like the boom of streaming, you know, and their need yeah. for a number of international series the two things came together. You're you're launching the company solo, and the boom of streaming at the same time just yeah came came at the right crossroads. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, we always, even before Made Up Stories, I was kind of working here and always kept a kind of stronghold here. Our producing partner Jody Madison, um, who's Australian, um, you know, we had been working well, even while we obviously lived overseas. We'd been working for years building a slate of projects here. But yes, you're 100% right. The kind of, you know, the the idea that now local content can exist on the international stage has really come of age in the last few years. Um, we've been very careful about what we produce locally, um, you know, because I do, uh, I, I'm not just making stuff for the Australian market. You know, we've been fortunate for all of our shows to kind of work internationally. So it's really important for us that whatever we make um, will translate. Um, so it is 100% one of my favorite places to work. Um, we also love shooting, you know, often we'll make international things here as well. Um, but for me, the European market, we've, we opened an office in London a few years ago, partly because I started my career in, um, in Europe and, um, you know, I'm also such a big fan of, you know, a lot of the talent coming out of Europe. So, you know, I, I do feel it's really exciting to kind of, you know, have, 
you know, people and um, be building stories in, in different places, you know, that obviously appeal to us. I mean, it's all, it's really about that. For me, it's still about people say, what do you want to make? I go, I want to make what I want to watch. I mean, it's, it's really that simple. Deadline's Crew Call is brought to you by HBO, presenting Succession. Nominated for 27 Emmys, including Outstanding Drama Series and Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series. Don't miss the series critics call the end-all, be-all of TV. Succession is now streaming on Max. Now, one of the things that I think is remarkable, you know, about your career is, you know, quite often when some producers break off from a big director or a big star that they're a partner with, their careers are never the same, but you are a rolling stone that gathers no moss. Was it, was it, and, and, and all, and no disrespect to, you know, anybody or anything, but was it harder to get up and running afterwards? Or was it just, you know, when, when you, you know, put the lights on, you know, at your new venture, was it business as usual? No, look, I think, look, in good news about me, I obviously had a career before the partnership with Reese Pacific Standard. You know, I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd made quite a lot of things. And so it wasn't, that's not where I, you know, obviously started my career. That said, we had obviously an incredible, we were incredibly fruitful time together. And it was kind of almost the renaissance of, you know, women in front of the camera, you know, uh, that, that was really like the kind of wind was on our backs at the time. So, you know, look, I, I think that because we really did have a true partnership, you know, I felt really confident going into that next stage. But that said, it was, it was, I think as you get older, you know, you 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 become clear and clear on what it is you as an individual and as a company want to build. And so it was the first time for me in my life that I felt just really confident and ready to to build the company exactly as, you know. As, as I wanted it to be. Um, and and I remember someone saying this to me. I'll never forget this. Michael London actually said it to me. I, mean, I can say it out loud because I worked for Michael London for a long time and made a lot of uh, uh, films with him. And I remember we disagreed about something once and he said, well, when you, can ha- when you have your own company, you can do whatever you want. And I was like, you're right. You know, I, at the time I was kind of like, oh, you know, I think we were, we were disagreeing about something, but, but in, but in some ways I always remembered that because I think I am, you know, I do very much. I'm, I'm quite scrappy and I definitely have worked my way up, you know, from very little. And so I think I do have a very much an entrepreneurial spirit and I like, you know, I like, I really have enjoyed building this company um, with my partners. Now, of, of course, you, you know, the Star Wars question to ask you is, is there another iteration of Big Little Lies? <laughs> and like, you know, look, I think you left us off with the cliffhanger with all of them walking to the jail at the end of season two. I, I think with that posse, there's still more story to tell. What is the state of things? You know, I remember when everyone was begging you for season two, it was like, oh, lit. Leanne Moriarty hasn't written a novel. It's up to her. It's up to her. Yeah. And then, thank God, she she <laughs> she wrote a treatment yeah. or something. Yes. And but and and it just came to be. But where where could there ever be another iteration of Big Little Lies? Yeah, I, I it- definitely. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, look, I it's so funny. I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot lately because 
you know, partly because it is, it is such a tremendous experience and, and such an amazing group of people who I think all genuinely love the experience of making it. And, you know, my my favourite people in the world are HBO and I will, you know, do anything to work with them more and again. I, I Look, I think obviously... David Zasloff would want it. Oh yeah, Dad, no, listen, <laughs> yeah. I'm 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 right there ready. No, no. Listen, if if there if if there was popular consensus, I would be the first person to put my hand up and say I would love to do more. And obviously with John Mark Valet's death, it, it did leave a big hole in that um you know that 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 um that, that was a devastating blow to, you know, me and, and Reese and so many people involved obviously in the show because he is such a um Reese and I had also obviously done wild with him. And um, so, you know, look, I think that, you know, uh, that that obviously has, you know, made us all pause, you know, but look, you know, these kids are, these kids are all growing up, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really interested in what happens to these teenagers and they've all gone on to obviously have wonderful careers that, that they, these kids Um and obviously all the women involved. So, yeah, let's not count it out. I'm in. It, is it in the hands of Leanne, though? Like, is it is it up to her yeah, to look, draft? I think, again, it would be a it, – it, it's going to be a conversation, you know, between David and Kelly and, 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 and Leanne and, you know, what, what she'd like to see done. And, yeah, I think, you know, I, again, I think it's – you know, in good news, I think, you know, everyone – you know, I, I do believe a lot of people feel like I do, which is, you know, we'd love to find a way, I think, at some point to continue. So Forces of Nature, Dry 2, opening in Australian cinemas August 24th? No, it was supposed to open August 24th. Oh, but really? I, I, yeah, I said that. To... I was No, 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 you're not wrong. It was supposed to. In fact, I think the premiere probably should have been, like, in the next two weeks. But, um... We made the decision because of the SAG strike because Eric felt quite strongly, even though the movie was not made under a SAG. It was obviously made as an Australian mm-hmm. movie um, for a local distributor here. Um, I totally respect and understand Eric's decision to, you know, not want to, you know, he's a producer. He's been like our, you know, amazing producing partner on the both films. And obviously he's the star of the film. And, you know, I totally understand that he didn't feel comfortable in this moment, you know stepping on a red carpet and publicizing it. And it's really important to him to connect with audiences directly. And really he's been part of, you know, doing those kind of live Q and A's. So, um, you know, we're really excited about the movie coming out and I'm super excited for people to see it. The first one obviously did such tremendous business here, but um, you know, we'll see obviously where things go and then find a new day. Does it have a U.S. distributor? Yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's the same people that basically did IFC. the first one. Yeah, IFC. Yes, IFC. exactly. Okay. And the same people internationally. But let's talk about let's talk about Drive for a second. Are you still shocked as to why it worked? I mean, it looking back, it made close to fifteen million dollars. I rounded up yeah. in Australia, yeah. Yeah. and um, you know, it was right when cinemas were reopening. You know, there was no no hesitancy. Um, it, it, when you look back, are you still kind of like, wow, like, were you expecting it to, to really resonate that much? Yeah, look, I, I, I knew the movie, the book was so beloved and I, and I knew the movie, it, it kind of, it was almost like a classic piece of Australian cinema, that movie. And so I had a good feeling, look, obviously Australia at the time had not had that big wave of COVID because they had closed, you know, closed the borders essentially. 
that other places had. And so I think it wasn't, what was amazing was not just that people were going back to the cinema, but because all of the US releases had shifted, they went back to see Australian films, not just ours, you know, but Australian films had a real renaissance during that time. And, um, you know, I'm hoping that America is having the same renaissance now with, you know, what's going on in the cinema because it's the first time and I've been praying for it since the kind of, you know, um, since the years of the pandemic that people would go back to the cinema in America. And so, you know, I don't know about you, but like I'm just thrilled with what's happening right now. I'm just like, oh, my God, keep going, go see everything. Um you know, it's, it's thrilling. So yeah, it, it's, it was really a, an amazing moment, I think, for Australian cinema, particularly that people embrace the movie so much. And I, and I hope they'll go see the next one. So as a, pro- you as a producer, I have to ask, how is the WGA and SAG after strike impacting mm. you? And mm. of course, dry, dry two, uh, understandable has moved, but are yeah. you in, what are you up to right now? Are you in a position where you can acquire IP? Yeah. Like what's, what's your take? Is there going to be, once this writer's strike is done, is there going to be a rush on the market? And, <laughs> and, and know, is acquisition I, prices going to be crazy? You know, for, you know, I, I, for I, I, you know it's hard, it's hard to tell. Cause I mean, obviously I was around for the 2008 strike, but um, you know, obviously this feels like a kind of, a, you know, obviously a big moment and, um, we've been, we, we were lucky in the sense that we had finished shooting a lot of things. We had a lot in post, you know, obviously even when we premiered Lost Flowers the other day, the actors couldn't come. And even though it wasn't made under a SAG agreement, obviously it was made as it, with the local equity unions in Australia, but 100%, of course, I understand why the actors, you know, can't come at, at that moment. I totally support that. Um, so, you know, we've been impacted in that way, obviously having to move the release. Um, we are in the edit on quite a few things and, and I'm obviously praying like everyone else that, you know, by the time those things are ready for release that, you know, the strikes will be over. Um, we also have a really robust development slate. So for us, um, you know, we're not in massive acquisition mode right now because I think one of the things that, you know, we've always been out, we've always kept our business, you know, scaled in a way that we can kind of survive, you know, the, the things we don't expect, COVID, you know, strikes, work stoppages, you know, and we, we've we been lucky in that we haven't had to, you know, let any of our staff go like others have, you know, in these kind of trying times. And so um, I think because of the Australian business and, and the UK business and um, because our American business is, you know, we've really got a lot of material that's written. Um, I think we're luckier than most in this moment. And, you know, I think I, like others, you know, I wish it wasn't happening at this time where, you know, the world is in a place, but also it had to happen at this time. You know, like the contracts are up. There are big issues at play. You know, I'm such a, you know, you've heard, probably heard me speak so many times, like writers define my entire business and always have, you know. And so obviously I think these discussions are super important and, um, you know, although I'm very happy to hear that at least people are going back to the table because, you know, that's, you know, I feel like there's some light. The once, you know, once the, the actors and the writers settle, 
do you have any projects that are a go that are in an absolute go position? Yeah, I yeah, I you know, we've been um I I don't think I don't think it's a secret. We've been um prepping uh, the second season of Nine Perfect Strangers, um, which is, you know, been in the works and, and we've been working on for a long time. Um, so hopefully that's one of the first things off. Um, we have a, a couple of Australian things that will also, you know, likely go very, very soon this year. And um and then I imagine, you know, twenty twenty four is gonna be very busy for a lot of people, you know. God willing things, you know, um, work out. And again, I just, you know, look, I, I think we again experienced this during COVID, right? There was like, there was so, I remember Australia just being, you couldn't get a crew. It was so crazy. And now, you know, one of the things that, that I, I think my heart is just so open right now also to the below the line crews and, you know, Australia is feeling it too. You know, we've had massive, massive international shows, pull out of the country we saw it with metropolis recently pulling out of melbourne and you know i knew crews that were planning on working on that show for three four years you know so you can imagine the giant size gap that that's left um you know for you know what is not a massive industry but like one that was really relying on some of those big international shows so you know that's um that's upsetting just because you know I know we know so many of these people, you know, these below the line crews that, you know, really live like, you know, job to job. And that's hard to to watch. With nine perfect strangers second season, completely new cast. Except for new strangers. Except for of course Miss Kidman. Our stalwart. Um, yes. (laughs) You haven't announced who who's in it yet. Not yet. No. I mean, there's yeah. been rumors. There have been rumors. There have been leaks. There have been leaks. But no, no we haven't announced it. Officially. You're going to take the entire cast of season one from White Lotus and put them in the <laughs> 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 Well, Jeff. there may be one. There may be one. Yeah. Bruna Papandrea, thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Anthony. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.